Hi, welcome back to Honor of Kings here on Kingdom in Context. Thank you for joining us again this week. This week, we're actually going to be looking at the Apocalypse of Baruch and the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, uh, simply because this is a fascinating moment in history that actually points to the future Jerusalem to come. And we're going to look at how Baruch explains that to us and how this was such a significant event in the history of Israel and also pertaining to the Ark of the Covenant and where it's possibly being placed. It's going to be a fascinating episode. We thank you for joining us here on Honor of Kings. So thank you for joining us again here on Honor of Kings. Um, I'm Sean Griffin here with my uh, awesome co-host. Ken Heidebrecht. Sean, thank you so much. I don't, I don't deserve such words, brother, but I appreciate that you, you have your vote of confidence for me to be a co-host with you on this amazing show. It's been a pleasure to do 13 plus episodes of chatting about God's word and digging into these extra biblical books, brother. I, I love it. And with each episode, I, I just feel like we're, we're finding gems that have been hidden and we're uncovering treasure. So it's, it's just a fun, fun, you know, thing to, to go through with you, man. No, man, you're, you're a great, uh, great friend, a great resource. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't do this show without you. So I appreciate it. In fact, everyone, if you haven't already subscribed to Ken's channel, um, I would encourage you to go check it out. It's called hanging on his words. And he's just put out another video recently. It's amazing. Um, it's really great. Uh, really well done. Very professional video. And, uh, I think you guys go check it out, go show him some love, subscribe to hanging on his words. And, um, but really, a lot of people may be asking, Ken, you know, we were doing the Book of Enoch for 13 episodes. And as we talked about in the previous two episodes, we're going to take quite a little bit of a break from Enoch because Enoch is, you know, over 100 chapters in the collection that we have as First Enoch. It's a really big book. We've already went through the first 50 chapters, didn't we? Yeah, 50 chapters. We're about a, th- yeah. what is it, about just over or under half. Right, just under half. And it took us over three months. And, um, and that was us actually hurrying through some of it. (laughs) So we were trying to, you know, we were trying to cover as much of it as possible, but at the same time, um, you know, for the sake of, of hitting the the major themes and the points within the chapters that things are being introduced, we're trying to do our best uh, to draw out what we feel is important to take notice of when comparing these, these concepts to the American canon of 66. Because ultimately here on Honor Kings, that's our goal. That's what we're trying to show folks is that some of these books that are considered apocryphal, uh, which just means hidden books, and also the extra biblical books, meaning books that were in other canons but not put into the the uh, traditional Catholic canon, which then became revised into the, the the traditional what we now call the traditional Protestant American canon of sixty six. So there's been lots of revisions to the collection of books over time that we consider scriptures, and so that's where we're looking into some of these books that have been removed, and we're testing them line by line to see should they have been removed. And should they have been kept in? So we, uh, we're finding some really fun things, as Ken said, really like just nuggets, you know, of good information to talk about that. And all along the way, our goal is to line these up with the American Canon 66 to show you, the viewer, if this book lines up to scripture, what you what we've considered scripture in our modern generation, or if it doesn't stand the test. Okay. So this next couple episodes, we're actually going to be looking at the Apocalypse of Baruch, which is sometimes called Second Baruch. And uh, it's fascinating, Ken. I, I'm, I really like this book. I love this book, Sean, um, for a variety of reasons. Some of them we're going to discuss on this episode. But 
I just find it fascinating that um, in 325, the Council of Nicaea, Sean, where they, they set up the, like, like I believe there's 60 canons or 60 rules, they called it. In the 60th rule, they had actually said that the writings of Baruch were legitimate and authentic, as well as Jeremiah's, obviously, Baruch being the scribe of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, he, you know, he had another book called the Epistle of Jeremiah, and those were considered just Jeremiah's writings that Baruch would have been the one scribing. So Baruch was legit, according to the, this Council of Nicaea in 325, as well as obviously Jeremiah's. But I guess what I'm getting at, Sean, is it really doesn't matter if, if you know, men say that these books are good or bad. We need to test them, right? That's right. We need to see That's if right. these things line up with what we considered the canon of 66. And at the end of the day, I believe that we can do that and we don't need to rely on men who, who put themselves in such positions to tell us and dictate what is good and what's bad. So, yeah, especially men of a certain association that has a longstanding history of not even teaching what's in the book. <laughs> so, yeah. And yet they want to tell me which parts of the book I can read and are legitimate and which ones are not. Yet these men do not even follow the basic doctrines of the book. You know, and it's like, where is the credibility here? What, how, who has convinced us to place our um, trust, loyalty, or allegiance to a, you know, the the opinions of men of these same men who who not even not only are they not teaching sound doctrine, but the fruit of their teachings is so destructive over history. You know, coming from the Catholic the Catholic Church, and you're just like, and then you go into this Protestant Reformation, which didn't really change that much from the Catholic Church. And you see tons and tons of division and people just infighting amongst themselves to where we have all these thousands of denominations now. Yet all the while, God's message has always been the same. It's always been through his prophets, the declaration of how to have a relationship with him and the fulfillment of that and the gospel of the kingdom of God. And, you know, at the consolation of the times and the day of the Lord. You know, it's been the same consistent message all these times. And so, I, you know, we're just testing these ideas. We're testing the traditions of men who say that this book is bad and that book is good. Well, really, why is it bad and why is that one good? So we're going to do that. We're going to test them. And today we're actually looking at uh, uh, the Apocalypse of Baruch, chapter 6 through 10. And this is actually going to cover some fascinating material, Ken. Yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, the, the first several chapters of this book just blew my mind um, for reasons we're going to talk about. But uh, yeah. this is a, a decent-sized book as well, Sean. I think, what is there, 50... 60 chapters no there's more than that there's about 80 no, there's a lot seven chapters so it's not a small book i mean it's not as lengthy as the book of enoch but um guys we're just we're hoping to cover you know bulk chapters of um you know these books that contain a lot of interesting um information i mean the whole the entirety of it is in, is interesting obviously but we, we just thought that it would be good to just cover bulk chapters that discuss some really fascinating things that fill in some interesting gaps so with further ado, Sean, do you want to start with chapter six here? Start reading it, or do you want to? Yeah, absolutely, man. Do you want to start reading chapter six? Absolutely. All right. And it came to pass on the morrow that, lo, the army of the Chaldees surrounded the city. And at the time of the evening, I, Baruch, left the people, and I went forth and stood by the oak. And I was grieving over Zion and lamenting over the captivity which had come upon the people. And, lo, suddenly a strong spirit raised me, and bore me aloft over the wall of Jerusalem. And I beheld, and lo, four angels standing at the four corners of the city, each of them holding a torch of fire in his hands. And another angel began to descend from heaven, and said unto them, 
Hold your lamps and do not light them till I tell you. For I am first sent to speak a word to the earth and to place in it what the Lord the Most High has commanded me. And I saw him descend into the Holy of Holies and take from there the veil and holy ark and the mercy seat and the two tables and the holy raiment of the priests and the altar of incense and the 48 precious stones wherewith the priest was adorned and all the holy vessels of the tabernacle. And he spoke to the earth with a loud voice, Earth, earth, hear the word of the mighty God and receive what I commit to you and guard them until the last times so that when you are ordered, you may restore them so that strangers may not get possession of them. For the time comes when Jerusalem also will be delivered for a time until it is said that it is again restored forever. Then the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. So, Sean, this is, I mean, where do we have this in any of the writings of, you know, Jeremiah or Isaiah? Anywhere, any of the prophets, where do we have this specific mention of angels coming down onto the city of Jerusalem? And, you know, fascinating, man. Yeah, this is like, um, and not just that, but they're specifically getting into the Holy of Holies and taking the things out of it, the artifacts out of it. Yeah. I mean, this is, to me, this is wild, man, because you've got like, and as, as you read, they throw it into the earth. They cause an earthquake and, and they, they put these artifacts into the earth, right? Yeah. Verse 10 and it says in the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. So I don't believe that this is like metaphoric language. I believe that we see something akin to what happened in the days of Korah and the rebellion there where the earth literally split open and there would have been an earthquake obviously to do that. And yeah. it just reminds me, Sean, of um, what Amos mentions kind of randomly in the very first verse of his, uh, the first chapter of his book. And I'll just read it here. It says, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And then he goes on to say, the Lord roars from Zion, from Jerusalem. And he's, he's referring to, in my opinion, the day of the Lord. He starts describing that. But what's really interesting here, Sean, is right at the end here of verse one, where it says two years before the earthquake. Now, I don't remember seeing any mention of an earthquake during the days. And in my opinion, this is two years being talked about before the captivity and before the, you know, the whole Chaldees coming around the city of Jerusalem. So no mention of an earthquake here, but what, what I think is going on here in this verse is that in second Baruch, where the earth opens its mouth to swallow all the things that the angel is told to take from the temple and place into it. I think this is the earthquake that uh, Amos might be referring to. What do you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a strong, strong postulation, brother. Um, because, you know, you know, prophetically, we see the same thing happen on the day of the Lord. You know, in Zechariah 14, there's a great earthquake that splits through the city. Um, and, you know, it, it is a part of the judgment that's happening in that moment as well. And uh, we also see that, and I think it's in Revelation, what, 16? Um a third of the city is is killed because of the earthquake, and you know there's just a lot of stuff going on. But yeah, the mountain walls, right? Is that where that splits up? Yeah. yeah. So here's the here's the thing that I, it looks like we just read about where the Ark of the Covenant went. <laughs> is yeah. that right? I mean, Sean, I'm sure you and all our brothers and sisters watching have heard a 
plethora of different theories as to, you know, where is the Ark of the Covenant? And, you know, we've heard a variety of things. And I think Baruch tells us straight up here, kind of, uh, in no uncertain terms, that it's in the mouth of the earth. The earth swallowed it. <laughs> so, Ken, is this any, is this, this can't be a coincidence, right? Because if Baruch and Jeremiah were buddies, basically, they were contemporaries, they were friends, that scribe, you know, uh, Baruch being the scribe of Jeremiah. Um, but then also Baruch having his own, you know, prophetic books and, and writings and, you know, um, and it's, it's just very interesting. Just like Ezra was considered a scribe, yet he's got his own prophetic books, you know what I mean? That's but right. is it any coincidence that in Jeremiah 3, we actually get Jeremiah talking about the Ark of the Covenant and, and about people asking for it? So I'll just read that real quick and then we'll, um, and because to me, like this is like, super relevant to what we're just reading here. So yeah, this is in cool. Jeremiah chapter three, verse 15 through 18. It says, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed on you knowledge, who will feed you knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you're multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord, that they will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and it will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their heart, evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk in the, with the house of Israel. They will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. So, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, Ken, as you and I would probably agree, this particular three verses I just read from Jeremiah 3, these are, these are about the day of the Lord, right? We got the reunification of the house of Israel from Ezekiel 37. The two sticks come back together. Um, this is the first resurrection is what makes that possible, according to many, many scriptures. And that's the moment where uh, the Zion has actually descended. The new Jerusalem has descended. And we're, that is the, the throne of the Lord is why it would call it in verse 16, you know, and Jerusalem is called the throne of the Lord, but they're also saying no one's even asking about the Ark of the Covenant anymore. So here's, here's the point is we're now in this moment where people are still asking, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, we sure are. And I mean, if we're going to take second Brooks account serious here in verse eight, where it says, um, and guard them until the last times, the earth being the one to guard them, so that when you are ordered, you may restore them, so that strangers may not get possession of them. I mean, there could be um, a day in the latter days, as this is referring to, where they do get restored, but in the interim, we have, yes, I agree exactly with what you're saying. There's, It's very possible. I personally don't think that that's going to, I think that that's been a, um, it's been set up to happen from zionism you know uh, where they claim that they know where the ark of the covenant is and once they get the temple built they're gonna they're gonna bring it back but i'm like i i don't i don't remember that part of any book of prophecy telling you that um that he was gonna let you dig it up yeah <laughs> you know what i mean and so uh and of course if we're taking this seriously you know because, for example, you remember like the stories of Ron Wyatt claims that he knows where the Ark of the Covenant is beneath the hill of Golgotha where Jesus was crucified. And that he has this this fantastic story about how the blood of Jesus surely must have, have dripped down into the crevices and then went into this place where the Ark was underneath and then dropped on the mercy seat because that's the only way he could have made atonement. Yeah. So like I'm like it's so with no mention of the heavenly tabernacle and Jesus's priesthood ministering in the heavenly tabernacle, but trying to fulfill this concept of legal requirement of atonement with the Ark of the Covenant, which was already taken away from the people. And so this is this, that's why you get this 
this very convoluted theory, in my opinion, of assumption that he claims happened at the crucifixion of Christ. But there's very little evidence for, I mean, he claims he's got a ton of evidence and that they, you know, there's caves underneath Golgotha that, that have been um, uh, hidden and that the, it's because they're hiding the Ark of the Covenant. I personally don't ascribe to that because we're actually going to talk about the reasoning for this temple being destroyed and what the angel actually tells him, um, you know, later on and at the end of the, at the end of the show. So stick around because it does relate to the new Jerusalem, the coming of Christ, just like we read in Jeremiah three, right? Just like people aren't really going to be asking about the Ark of the Covenant anymore. Now, personally, I think it's it like you, like you talked about here in Baruch chapter six, verse eight, so that, you know, until the last times, so that when you are ordered, you may restore them. Well, it's very possible that he could use this Ark of the Covenant literally as the throne of the Lord, like we just read in Jeremiah. Because if it literally is a mercy seat, what do we see at the coming of the Lord? He's dealing out justice and mercy. That's so right. it, if, you know, we, I think I, I talked about this in another video. Um, I think it's called uh, No Temple in the New Jerusalem, where I just I go over some of the different potential different um, designs of the actual Ark of the Covenant as far as it was it literally just a box with wings covered over it or was it more shaped like an actual seat because it was considered an actual mercy seat mm -hmm. you know and that's where um, and considered to be literally the, the place where the presence of the Lord dropped down you know that's right. and so um, uh, I just think that that's interesting because application wise if we're seeing Jeremiah say, well, people aren't even going to ask about it or miss it because not because it's never, never talked about again, but just because they know where it is now because he's literally sitting on it as the throne of the Lord yeah. when he comes down. It's just an idea, but yeah, it's very interesting. And that, that could be why Baruch is talking about him them being restored in the last times. Yeah. Cause will be so, shot. And it's not going to be restored by modern day Zionists. I'm just letting you know. In my in my opinion, hundred yeah. percent agree with that. Yeah. Now, Sean, did you want to get into um, just some of the the details within the first couple of verses here about you know where Baruch kind of is situated during this event? Yeah. Um, you know what we didn't actually read was the end of chapter five, but the end of chapter five, basically, he and Jeremiah and some other guys that were considered the the honorable men of the people, they went outside of the city, outside of the temple. Uh, not not outside the city, but outside of the temple into the Kidron Valley, which is real close by. And they went to go fast and pray there for an entire day. And then after the next day, um, Baruch leaves because the Chaldean army is coming and they surround the city. So um, not just the temple, but they surround the city. And so this is where when we try to place these things in chronological order, it looks like Baruch, because he says in verse six, you know, I left the people and went forth and stood by the oak. And it, it seems to me that he'd left the city because he's not taken into captivity by the Chaldean army, is he, Ken? No, he's not. He's not. So, so Sean, then, okay, if he's not within so, the, you know, the proximity of the city, what, what is this oak that he's standing by here that he left to go, you know, stand by? What, what, what are we talking about here? Well, this is where it gets really fun, guys, because um, in in Genesis, there's uh, several different places where um, oaks are mentioned, <laughs> and we have uh, two of the two of the places. Um, well, all three of these places, Abraham has significance with, and Jacob does as well. Um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
but you know we get in, in Genesis chapter uh, twelve. Um, I think it's in chapter twelve. Let me let me look real quick. Um, I believe it's a first mention here of of the oaks where. You see here, it's actually at, um, this is where, as Abraham and Lot and the whole family are journeying from Haran, and they get into the land of Canaan, um, it's verse 6, Genesis 12, 6, Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Morah. Now there in the land, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to them. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So this is the first place where after going to Shechem, he then goes down to Bethel. Both of these places are north of Jerusalem, a few miles. And then he goes in chapter 13 after coming back from Egypt. Because remember, he goes down to Egypt for a while. There's some shenanigans with Sarah and the Pharaoh. You know, and then he comes back and it says that, um, okay. Um, but here, so here in actually Jubilees 13, we get more exposition on what we just read from Genesis 12, uh, six through nine, where he talks about after being in Shechem, Abraham moves down to Bethel. And so it says Abraham in uh, chapter 13, verses one through nine, Abraham journeyed from Haran and took Sarah's wife and Lot, his brother, Haran's son to the land of Canaan. He came into Asher and proceeded to Shechem, dwelt near a lofty oak. And he saw, and behold, the land was very pleasant from the entering of Hamath to the lofty oak. And the Lord said to him, To you and your seed, I'll give this land. Again, this is what we just read in Genesis 12. He does build an altar there in Shechem. But then in verse 5, he removed from there unto the mountain, Bethel on the west, Ai on the east, and pitched his tent there. And he saw, and behold, the land was very wide and good, and everything grew thereon, vines and figs and pomegranates, oaks and ilexes, and the terebinth and the oil trees, and cedars and cypresses and date trees, and all the trees of the field, and there was water on the mountains. And he blessed the Lord who had led him out of the early Chaldees, brought him into this land. And it came to pass in the first week, the seventh week, and the new moon of the first month, that he built an altar on this mountain and called on the name of the Lord, Thou the eternal God art my God. And he offered on the altar a burnt, sacri burnt sacrifice unto the Lord, that he should be with him and not forsake him all the days of his life. So he has two moments. There's a big moment here where he's, this is apparently a really cool place to live. And uh, it seems like a really nice place. And this is just Abraham's introduction to Bethel. Okay. So as most of us already know, Genesis actually has a pretty, uh, pretty fun story to talk about Bethel when it comes to, as far as Jacob is concerned, this is in Genesis chapter 28, I mean, verses 10 through 19. And the reason we're doing this is we're showing you uh, just with such a small mention of Baruch leaving the city. And then we're, and then he gets this vision of the angels where it says a spirit picked him up. You know, I don't know how that works, Ken. Like, did he pick him up by the scruff of the neck? Did he pick him up? Like, did he drop down some ropes and pick him up? Like, you know, a helicopter lifting up some payload? Like, I don't exactly know how this works. Did they have, a, like, some sort of, you know, advanced tech chariot? You know, I'm not going into full-on ancient aliens here, but I'm just saying, like, was it, how, did, how did he lift it? Did he just grab his hand and that's all he needed just to lift him up and carry him? You know, like super in Superman Part Two, where Clark is flying with Lois through the city just by <laughs> holding her hand, and it's ridiculous. So, like, I don't, I don't know exactly how he lifted him up, but it says a strong spirit seized him and lifted him up over the walls of Jerusalem to show him this destruction that was about to take place and explain to him what was about to happen. Um, and this, by mind you, is before the the army of you know Nebuchadnezzar even gets into the, to the city, yeah, right, or even gets into um, into the walls, the big walls. That's right. So 
it's very in important. my opinion, Sean, it, he possibly could have been taken up in the spirit. We see that's very consistent with yeah. all the prophets is that they're taken in the in the spirit, yeah. right? And a spiritual that would vision. be interesting to see Baruch literally hovering over, you know, <laughs> having a bird's eye right. view. <laughs> yeah, it's like that movie Chronicle, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Where they're just they're just suddenly flying up there and like, hey. Yeah. People just looking up like, what's that? So um but yeah, basically here in Genesis 28, what we're doing is we're showing you that uh, here at Bethel is very significant, you know, this place. And here's uh, a moment of significance that Jacob himself has at Bethel. And it's many of you may may be aware of this kind of a famous passage. And it's Jacob's dream in uh, chapter, verse 10. And it says, then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went to Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there. So real quick, it's just interesting to note that he that they delineate that he went toward Haran, but he didn't get to Haran, right? So verse 10 says, And Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there. So clearly he's just en route, you know? But it doesn't mention what this place is. It just calls it a certain place, which to me is pretty suspect. To me, that's like, that's yeah, that's just like when you see other places where it says, in certain men. And you're like, wait a minute, why aren't you naming these people? What's going on here? You know, he wants us to this dig could, a little more. Exactly, man. This could be those little moments in the word where God does, you know, Proverbs 25, too, right? It's the honor kings to search it out. He kind of subtly hides it. But point is, uh, verse 11, he says, He came to a certain place, spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place, put under his head, and laid down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with the top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father of Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely, this, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? There is none other. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob arose early in the morning, took the stone he had put under his head, set up a pillar, and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. So then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God be will be with me, I will keep and keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear. I will return to my father's house in safety. Then the Lord will be my God. The stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give you a tenth. Wow. Betel, the host of God. Yeah. Crazy. It's it's amazing. I mean, this is just absolutely wild. Um, and so we see a little bit of a parallel in that um, here in Jubilees chapter 27. And uh, and that's going to be in verses 19 through 27. But I'm, I'm maybe not read all of it. Um but basically in verse 25, Jacob has the same moment. He, he wakes from this sleep, having this, you know, this message from God. And he, again, in, in Jubilees 27, 25, he calls it, This place is the house of the Lord, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, Dreadful is this place, which is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so it says he, he you know, he built a, um, a, put up that same rock on a pillar and then poured oil over the top of it, which I guess he's anointing. You know, anointing the rock, which is pretty fascinating. It's probably a lot of symbology there. But um, what's interesting, though, is in verse 19 of Jubilees 27, it says, Jacob went from the well of oath to go to Haran. Now, we didn't actually get that in in, in Genesis 28, right? Remember the well of oath? This is Abraham's moment, 
right? right. So he actually goes from a significant spot in Abraham's life trying to get to Haran. But here's what's interesting is it says he came to lose on the mountains. And this doesn't call it a certain place in Jubilees. It actually just tells you what it is. And it says, and that is Bethel on the new moon of the first month of this week. So just as in Abraham, first month. That's, that's right, man. Yeah. On the new moon of the first month. So this is what we just saw earlier with Abraham and the, and the sacrifice he made in Bethel was on the new moon. So that's like, the, so you have these significant moments that are happening here where, you know, he's getting angelic visitation. And I just think that this is fascinating. So then if we even look further, in the book of Jubilees in chapter 32, it says, uh, verse 1, that they uh, that he abode that night at Bethel. And so this is Jacob and his whole family. So the 12 sons of Israel are already, I think they're already born at this time. All of them are. And it says, Levi dreamed that night that, that they had ordained and made him the priest of the Most High God and his sons forever. And he awoke from his sleep and blessed the Lord. And so then he actually, in the next few verses, goes on to receive the priesthood from Jacob. And this is the beginning of the Levitical priesthood, which is an eternal ordinance before the Lord. This is why in the day the Lord returns in Isaiah 66, he talks about choosing new Levites to minister outside the New Jerusalem for, for the regular mortals, if you will. And so this is the beginning of that moment right here. This is why in Exodus 19, when they're at the base of the mountain at Sinai, there are already Levite priests there because they had already hundreds of years earlier had received at Bethel the priesthood. So there's another huge significant moment here happening at this place called Bethel, the house of God. But if we look a little further down here in Jubilees uh, 32, um, it just talks about how um, Levi in verse 9, it says, Levi discharged the priestly offer, office at Bethel before Jacob, his father, in the presence of his ten brothers. He was a priest there. Jacob gave his vow. He tithed again to tithe the Lord and sanctified it and became holy unto him. And so this is reaffirming the, the, what he had talked about in Jubilees 27. But in verse 17, it says, The Lord appeared to him by night and blessed him and said unto him, Your name shall not be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So again, at Bethel is the moment where Jacob gets the, the famous name change to Israel. It's a huge moment in, in the patriarchal history. Verse 18, he said unto him again, I am the Lord who created the heaven and the earth. I will increase you, multiply you exceedingly. The kings will come forth from you. You shall judge everywhere, wherever the foot of the sons of men is trodden. And I will give you the seed of all the earth, which is under heaven. And they also judge all the nations according to their desires. And after that, they should get possession of the whole earth and inherit it forever. So to me, this is that moment where we're actually saying after the millennial reign, you're getting everything. So this is, but that's a, a bigger, longer conversation about the second resurrection and the implications of, you know, the, the resurrections themselves. Verse 20. Um, um, one second. Oh, basically, if we go to 21, he saw in a vision of the night and behold, an angel descended from heaven with seven tablets in his hands. He gave them to Jacob. He read them and knew all that was written therein, which would befall him and his sons throughout all the ages. Ken, that is a massive statement. That is massive. I mean, he just got the cheat sheet to history, to the future history. That's right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like Jacob is Professor X in days of future past. Like he's he's. <laughs> He's able to see all of it from start to finish. Like I don't ever see any anyone having this this type of verbiage and this type of claim to any of the other patriarchs or prophets in all of the Bible. Yeah, I mean, even just with Enoch, he, I mean, he boasted about being revealed all things too, right? But um, yeah. that's fascinating, man. Um, for multiple reasons, it's evident that Bethel, this house of God area, is significant. You know, we have a lot of significant biblical characters that are showing up here in the same spot. Um, 
So yeah, what what do you so, think is the significance with what we're reading in Baruch here? Well, the significance is in the very next verse, brother, and that's in uh, we're still in Jubilees thirty-two, and this is in verse twenty-two. He says, "And he showed him all that was written on the tablets, and said unto him, Do not build this place, and do not make it an eternal sanctuary, and do not dwell here, for this is not the place. But go to the house of the, your Abraham, your father, and dwell with Isaac, your father, until the day of the death of your father." So he got to see all the things that would befall him and his sons throughout the ages. But then he actually said to him, by the way, this isn't the actual place where the sanctuary is going to be. So, because Jacob actually wanted to start building the temple. This yeah, is crazy. Like yeah. way before David and Solomon, Jacob was like, I want to build it. Yeah. Exactly. He's like, well, this is the house of God, isn't it not? So I'm going to build it. But he's like, no, no, this isn't the place. Be patient. That's why he promised him earlier. I will bring you back here. And that's to me, that's an allusion to the first resurrection in the end of, because remember Jacob, Jacob doesn't, uh, he dies in, in Egypt, right? That's right. Yeah. And even though, and he was buried in Shechem, he wasn't buried in Bethel. Yeah. So he you've got all these little, resurrection. Yeah. That's right, man. You got, it's layered everywhere. It's layered in that the father was even through the patriarchs from the very beginning. They're all just, he's constantly pointing towards the, the true tabernacle to come, which is the land of promise in New Jerusalem and the promise of us being taken to that place with our descendants forever, which is the first resurrection event. It's just layered all throughout this, man. Yeah, so, and uh, they would have, they would have, in my opinion, they would have had knowledge of resurrection because, I mean, we, as we've read in the book of Enoch, it talks about it over and over and over. That's right? right. On the day of the Lord, when those will be coming out of Sheol. Like, it's just, it's, you're right. It's, it's not a new concept when we get to the New Testament, right? That's they right. had an understanding of a resurrection of the the need to be placed into the land of promise that they knew they were sojourners in, right? So it's yeah, it's it's very fascinating yeah. when we see that Yahweh is consistent; he's not dispensational in any way whatsoever, and and it's a great great message, and it's the gospel of the kingdom of God. Yeah, the the resurrection, as far as I can trace, it, uh, the first resurrection event is promised all the way back as early as Enoch chapter five, verses six through nine. Yeah, and that parallels Deuteronomy thirty verses five through eight. And, and I just, John, even in another book um, that we may eventually get to, the book of Adam and Eve, Adam knew that he needed to be resurrected too. That's right. His father yeah. had already told him in those writings that you're going to need to be resurrected and placed into paradise, which I'm going to kick you out of, but that's then right. you're come back into eventually. So, yeah, it's that's right. And um, so this this house of Bethel here that Jacob is having all these visions, angels are showing up. He sees the vision of the angels coming and going up and down this ladder between him and heaven. And he's, he's amazed at this particular location, right? Because he thinks this is literally the gate of heaven. Whatever that means, I'm not sure. So my only speculation, Ken, is that this was possibly the original location of the Garden of Eden. Like the, like the pinpoint, like the pin drop. Not just the region, but like the pin drop. You know what I'm saying? Your GPS, Google location. The exact coordinates, boom. Right. Yeah. This is your, yeah, this is it. I, I just, possible, it's very possible. And it could have been in front of us this whole time. I don't know if that's the full conclusion yet, but that's just seems to be if that's literally the gateway, the gate of heaven. And this is, you know, yeah. of everything that we've already talked about, about the Garden of Eden from the Book of Enoch and everything um, and other episodes. We even discussed it in the last episode of Honor of Kings. So go check that out. But, um, you know, it's very possible. But as far as Bethel itself, there's a lot of other significance all throughout the history of Israel before we even get to this moment in Second Baruch. And that's where, like in Joshua chapter 7, um, this is the moment where, you know, Joshua does this battle between Ai and Bethel 
and he destroys, you know, he has to take over those two cities because they were still being, you know, ruled by the people of the land of Canaan. So this is after they cross the Jordan, they go into AI, they have this battle. This is the one, remember, where they, they actually act like they're being defeated and they run away, and then the men of AI and Bethel run after them. And then some other guys go around the back and start burning the cities of AI and Bethel. Yeah. And then the and so they entrap them, you know, and they they trick them basically. Uh, Joshua was a pretty smart military commander. Also, the book of Judges, uh, chapter 4, I think it's in verse 5, it says that Deborah, she judged at, she was judging Israel at uh, Bethel. And then we get uh, in Judges chapter 20, we see that Phineas is actually guarding the Ark of the Covenant at Bethel for a significant amount of time, uh, which is a unique place to, to leave it. But 1 Samuel 7, uh, Samuel actually judges there once a year at Bethel. And then uh, 1 Samuel 10, this is the moment where Saul is anointed at Bethel, and then there's other prophets that are there, you know, and then spirit jumps onto Saul's belt and he starts prophesying. All that happened at Bethel, guys. First King 12 is where we see a turn, though, okay? So this is where Jeroboam, the, the evil king, gets involved, and he actually sets up a golden calf at Bethel, which is like, if you wonder why Jeroboam was called, like, the worst evil king there was. So if, if we got all this, this significance for... Um, you know, why Bethel was such a significant place with the patriarchs and all this history of righteousness and the word of Yahweh and, you know, the commandments of Yahweh being carried out specifically at this place and all these angelic visitations happening at specifically at Bethel. And here comes this Jeroboam dude, full on pride and arrogance running in like, oh, let's just set up a bull there, a golden calf, and we'll worship it and do all the horrible occultic practices there. So no wonder it was such a strong stench, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, it's just, super offensive it's, to Yahweh. Yeah, that's that's like, man, that's horrible, man. That's like, that's Manasseh that's, style stuff. That's bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's just bad stuff. But also, um, you know, First Kings thirteen talks about the two unnamed prophets. All that story took place at Bethel as well, because that was where um, one of the unnamed prophets actually rebuking Jeroboam, and this miraculous sign happens where the 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 altar split open and everything just as the man proclaimed and then so that whole story is taking place at Bethel as well so there's just a ton of history there um, that I think is so important for us to understand why if Baruch is leaving the city here in chapter 6 so the Chaldean army hasn't encircled him either so he got away basically you know and that's where there you've got historical accounts that claim that he went down to Egypt and he and then when Nebuchadnezzar continued to press west and captured Egypt as well later, which I believe is in Jeremiah 45, uh, the capturing of Egypt. Um, because a lot of the Assyri the um, the first invasion from Assyria that scattered some of the uh, some of the ten northern kingdoms, many of them fled to Egypt. And so supposedly Baruch also fled to Egypt at this point after this invasion of the of the city and the temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, but was later taken back to Babylon once Nebuchadnezzar invaded Egypt. So just an, it's just some crazy stuff there, man. Yeah. The, understanding the history, Sean, is, is so important. You know, yeah. I mean, we're, I think we're both, we can say we're both history buffs. And I know a lot of people don't like to get into the nitty gritties of history, but guys, like there's so much detail involved and, and so much. Important. It's an integral part of the, of the storyline to know, you know, what took place and what, how it mirrors what's to come. Right. Because a lot of it foreshadows things to come. Because we know that the Hebrews and and the scriptures in and of itself they're cyclical. They're they're full of patterns. Yeah, right? and that's why the, the pattern we're seeing here is that uh, there there were oaks, if you will, if we're if we're going off a single tree reference, there were oaks all over the place apparently at uh, at Bethel, and it was a prime spot 
for all these guys who were prophets to hang out, to judge, to speak, to get visions from the Lord, to hear from the Lord. Uh, this was actually a place where uh, Elijah and Elisha had an interaction right before Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind. Um, he actually, Elijah was trying to tell his understudy, Elisha, stay in Bethel, but Elisha refused and tried to go with him um, so he could catch the mantle, you know, when it dropped after Elijah went up in the whirlwind. Um, but so there was a lot of significant moments happening here at Bethel. And I, I think personally, I think that this is the same moment. Okay. That, or this is the same place where another angelic moment is happening, whether it's a vision or a literal interaction uh, of what he's seeing being destroyed here by the temple and why. And that's kind of the interesting part, isn't it? Ken? of like, why, why are these angels coming to do this in Jerusalem? And, and this, this literally in the moments while the Chaldean army led by Nebuchadnezzar is encircled the city. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Man. You know what's interesting, Sean, is um, you what you had mentioned when you're reading Genesis how Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, right, and then he ended up going to Bethel, um, eventually. You know, it, it's it is it's it's cyclical. It's it's fascinating because we see what do we see here? We see the Chaldees coming into this land, and we see Baruch. You know, if if this theory is correct, which I think it, you know, it's very plausible, he had to leave and he went over to an oak, possibly near nearing Bethel, right? Um, it's just fascinating how we have the Chaldees coming back into play. Abraham's called out of that, right? Because they're they're the the nemesis, right? These this land of the Chaldees and <laughs> stemming yeah. all the way back to Nimrod, correct? Yeah, it's it's well, of course, Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Jeremiah is called his his the Lord's hammer. The Lord says, I'm going to use the destroyer, and he's referring to Nebuchadnezzar and calls him Hammer of the Lord yeah. in metaphoric fashion to, to exact judgment on all these nations surrounding Israel, including Israel. And so this is, and there's another place, I can't remember the exact passage, but uh, Nebuchadnezzar is metaphorically called the two hands of God that are going to come clasped together and destroy you. <laughs> so like, like Nebuchadnezzar, for whatever you might think of this guy, the Lord used him. And yes, he was an apostate. Yes, he was a, a cultic. Um, and yes, you know, he has that famine moment. I think it's in Daniel chapter three or four where he, you know, he goes crazy for seven years and then he gets his mind back to him. And then he starts acknowledging that Yahweh is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the God of heaven, that he is the one true God, you know? And so he's had basically earlier in his career, he's being used by him. And, and it makes me wonder, Ken, if this moment here that we're reading in second Baruch where, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's army is outside the city and these angels show up an earthquake happens these holy vessels from within the holy holies are then put in the ground to be hidden away it makes me wonder if like a lot of this was in the mind of nebuchadnezzar over time like man we had some crazy things happening when we try to take on these hebrews you know what i'm saying and like they keep talking about how their god is the one true god and like and we didn't you know this there's an earthquake the temple itself as we read well we haven't have we read that part yet i don't even know if we had chapter eight we, we should probably read chapter eight so we can help people keep keep going here. Yeah, we can even just move along and read the bulk of what we wanted to do and then come back and... Yeah, because it, it's all just the same story, basically. So yeah, I'll just... I'll read chapter eight and nine. Um, do, do seven, too. Seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah. yeah, they're so short. There's like one line. Um, so second group, chapter seven. It says, um, And after these things, I heard that the angels saying unto those angels who held the lamps... Destroy, therefore, and overthrow its wall to its foundations, lest the enemy should boast and say, We have overthrown the wall of Zion, and we have burnt the place of the mighty God, and they have seized the place where I have been standing here before. 
So now the angels did as he commanded them, and when they had broken up the corners of the walls, a voice was heard from the interior of the temple after the wall had fallen, after the wall had fallen, saying, Enter your enemies, enter you enemies, and come you adversaries, for he who kept the house has forsaken it. And I, Baruch, departed, and it came to pass after these things that the army of the Chaldeans entered and seized the house and all that was around it, and they led the people away captive and slew some of them, and bound Zedekiah the king and sent him to the king of Babylon. And chapter uh, 9 says, I, Baruch, came, and Jeremiah, whose heart was found pure from sins, who had not been captured in the, in the seizure of the city, and we rent our garments, we wept and mourned, and fasted seven days. In chapter 10, it says, It came to pass, after seven days, that the word of the Lord came to me and said unto me, Tell Jeremiah to go and support the captivity of the people unto Babylon. But do you remain here amid, amid the desolation of Zion, and I will show you after these days what will befall at the end of days. And I said to Jeremiah, as the Lord commanded me, and he indeed departed with the people. But I, Baruch, returned and sat before the gates of the temple, and I lamented with the following lamentations over Zion, and said, Blessed is he who is not born, or he who, have been, having been born, has died. But as for us who live, woe unto us, because we see the afflictions of Zion, and what has befallen Jerusalem. I will call the sirens from the sea, and you, Lilin, come you from the desert, and you, Shadim, and dragons from the forest, awake and gird up your loins into mourning. Take up with me the dirges, and make lamentations with me. Ye husbandmen, sow not again, and, O earth, wherefore give you your harvest fruits? Keep within you the sweets of your sustenance. And you, vine, why further do you give your wine? For an offering will not again be made from there in Zion, nor will firstfruits again be offered. And do you, O heavens, withhold your dew, and open not the treasuries of rain? And do you, O sun, withhold the light of your rays? And do you, O moon, extinguish the multitude of your light? For why should light rise again, where the light of Zion is darkened? And you, bridegrooms, enter not in, and let not the brides adorn themselves with garlands. And you, women, pray not that you may bear. For the barren shall above all rejoice, and those who have no sons shall be glad, and those who have sons shall have anguish. For why should they bear in pain, only to bury in grief? Or why again should mankind have sons? Or why should the seed of their kind again be named where this mother is desolate and her sons are led into captivity? From this time forward, speak not of beauty and discourse not of gracefulness. Moreover, you priests, take you the keys of the sanctuary and cast them into the height of heaven. Give them to the Lord and say, guard your house yourself. For lo, we are found false stewards. And you, you virgins who weave the fine linen and silk with the gold of Ophir, take with haste all these things and cast them into the fire that it may bear them to him who made them, and the flame send them to him who created them, lest the enemy get possession of them. Sean, wow, that last chapter is, um, <laughs> we could probably do wow. a whole episode on that one, to be honest. Yeah, man, there's a, there's a lot going on in there. But um, ultimately, just starting in chapter 7 and 8, the angels themselves broke down the walls of Jerusalem. The, the Chaldean army didn't, is that right? That's how it reads, yeah. And why? Because Yahweh didn't want, you know, the Chaldeans boasting that we've done this, right? That's right. He, lo he loves that city. He loves his people. And he didn't want them boasting in, in, the, in that, you know, victory. So he says, I'm going to do it my way, right? Which is a consistent thing for him to be doing throughout the scriptures. He does it his own way and he uses his agents, his angels. That's right. And, and even as he adds in uh, chapter 8 and at the end of verse 2, he says, For he who kept the house has forsaken it. And he's basically inviting the enemies to come on in because I'm I'm not protecting my house anymore. It's I've, it's been forsaken and desolate, you know. Yeah. 
It's so sad. It's sad to read it that way, you know? It it is. But basically he's, you know, um the artifacts of the Holy of Holies, they they've been put in the ground. So this is like metaphorical metaphoric symbolism of, you know, this the heart of the city is dead. Yeah. You know, the the things that they use for their for their connection with the Father and their God, it's dead. Like he's obviously we know that he still you know, spoke to them and had covenant with them. But I'm just saying all these copies and shadows, all these things that he put on the earth for them to follow that are patterned after the heavenly tabernacle. Um, they're all, he's like, look, it's over guys. This thing's dead. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Sean in, um, chapter 10 verse, where was it? Verse, uh, where's it? Five. I'm not sure. One, two. I don't see the numbers here. Um, you see what I'm saying? Because it goes to it goes one, two, and then it goes to six. Yeah. What number. thought so, were you were you asking about? I was just uh, we're right at the end um, of that paragraph where it says, "And I lamented with the following lamentation over Zion and said." So, like, I know um, it's thought that Jeremiah was the one that wrote Lamentations, right? I mean, if we pull up um, even just a quick pull up on Google here, who wrote Lamentations? Lamentations has traditionally been ascribed to Jeremiah, probably on the grounds of the reference in 2 Chronicles 35-25 to the prophet composing a lament on the death of King Josiah, but there is no reference to Josiah in the book and no reason to connect it to Jeremiah. So, possibly Baruch could have been the writer of Lamentations. So you're, because why? Because Lamentations talks about this very, very yeah. sad moment, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it yeah. could, it very well could have been Jeremiah too. And I'm, I'm just saying like, it's, it's not really known. It very well could have been Baruch as well. Yeah. He's, I mean, he, was the he witnessed it, right? He witnessed it. He was a scribe and he's lamenting here. I, I'm not just using that word, isolating that word lamentation and then thinking, oh, he must've wrote lamentations, but it, like scholars don't really know. They say it's probably Jeremiah, but they can't, there's no reason to really connect him to it. You know what I mean? Gotcha. Yeah. Well, even like we see in, let's go real quick to Jeremiah 36, just so people can, can understand that in the book of Jeremiah, uh, this Baruch is actually mentioned as his scribe. And we see this pattern already playing out where he actually calls Baruch before him and says, hey, write these words down and go tell them to people. So yeah. I'm not saying that Jeremiah was couldn't couldn't write himself, that he was somehow you know unable to actually pin things down. But Basically, the way that some of this stuff worked was that, um, you know, the scribe was writing this down on a scroll and he was basically dictating what his his leader was telling him, basically. And so like uh, Jeremiah 36, verse four, it says, then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, I am restricted. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. So you go read from the scroll, which you have written in my dictation the words of the Lord to the people in the Lord's house on a fast day. And you shall read them to all the people of Judah who come from their cities. Um, and then verse five says, or verse eight says, Baruch, the son of Neriah did according to all that Jeremiah, the prophet commanded him reading from the book of the words of the Lord in the house in the Lord's house. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's one of those things where like who actually gets the credit, you know, if, if the words of lamentation could have been the, the, the words coming from the heart as the spirit moved upon Jeremiah, and they were dictated by, by Baruch, um, or it could have just been Baruch himself. And there's just a, a scribal error over time. 
Yeah, but but what's interesting, Sean, is what Lamentations has to say. There's a couple interesting verses in that in that book that would kind of lend the idea that you know in Second Baruch chapter six here, it wasn't only the Chaldees that that you know had the destruction upon Jerusalem, right? Which verse are you thinking of? Uh, which one was it in Lamentations where it says that Yahweh's fire, he he. Uh, his fire went forth onto um, Jerusalem. Oh, okay. Didn't you pull I that one you. up? Um, it's in chapter four, and I think it's in, um, yeah, I think it's in. Uh, I don't have that one in front of me. Is the chapter, chapter four, verse 11. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He has kindled a fire in Zion, which has consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. But because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who have shed in her midst the blood of the righteous, they wandered blind in the streets. They were defiled with blood so that no one could touch their garments. Um, depart unclean, they cried among themselves. Depart, depart, do not touch. So they fled and wandered. Men among the nations said, They shall not continue to dwell with us. The presence of the Lord has scattered them. He will not continue to guard them. They did not have honor. They did not honor the priests. They did not favor the elders. Um, and so basically it's just, it just goes on to continue to say that it was the Lord the breadth of, you know, it was his anger and wrath that destroyed uh, Jerusalem, just like we see in Baruch, like he's talking about. Yeah. And we, we also, I think it's in chapter one of Lamentations, um, you just get more grieving over the idea. This is basically parroting the whole chapter one and two is parroting the whole mourning process of what we see here in second Baruch, uh, where he says, um, like you just read in chapter 10, verse two and three, he sat down and make lamentations at the gates of the temple. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, it's just a heartbreaking thing for him, which is why he's saying like, better that no one's been born than to see this, you know, <laughs> so yeah. it, it's pretty wild. But um, yeah, lamentations is one of those books, man. If I'm going to be honest, I, I always put on the back burner, you know, through for many years, I put it on yeah. the back burner, but. Cause it, it seems so, um, what's the word? It seems so, uh, Oh, what's that? It's super what's that modern? It's it's um, gosh, it's on the tip of my tongue. It's so um, goodness. Aside uh, from it being depressing and and full of despondence, like to me, it was just like okay, like I don't understand here. Like what's he's what I'm getting at is the whole book talks about Jerusalem in personified female form, right? That's right. And it's like, okay, who cares? But like, it's all over the place when you start seeing, especially our mother above Jerusalem, which Paul refers to in Galatians 4. Um, I can't remember which verse it is, but 26. Yeah, it's there's this consistent fem femaleizing, if I could, I think it's made that word up, um, of structures, right? Yahweh has a connection to these city structures and he talks to them as if they're females yeah and lamentations is full of that and even in baruch here i mean we just talked where was it in chapter 10 16 where this mother is desolate and her sons are led into captivity i mean it's it's super fascinating when you start seeing in all the prophets this mother and this female that keeps getting referred to and in, in this personified form is not about a people it's i mean in the grand scale of things, it is it, there's an addendum to that with the people. But when he specifically talks about the cities, 
you know, mother above and the Jerusalem daughter, right? We, we see that throughout the scriptures as well. It's just an, an amazing thing to see. And, and I mean, I have to credit you for that, Sean. It's like this picking up on these personified, you know, forms of talking to, to the city. And he does that. And, he's, and this is what Lamentations is all about. Yeah, that's true, man. And next week on Honor of Kings, we're going to go into the first five chapters of the Apocalypse of Baruch, where we're going to flesh out that idea even further and sure. talk about, because he's actually, Baruch is told that the, the Zion that you just saw be destroyed, it's not the real one anyway. So don't worry, bro. <laughs> it's like, and even though he's sad, and he's rightly so, because this was the destruction of their culture, their people. Lots of people were killed during this invasion. Um, they've lost literally their, the land that you know that they grew up in. So it's a very, it's a traumatic event. Um, but the father, the copy, all along right? the way, say what? It's the copy. They were they they loved the, the copy of what was in the heavens, right? They they yes. and why not? Yahweh tried to you know give them a, a place that would emulate the thing that's above the firmament of the heaven. So. Sure. And that's where you know, he's trying to encourage Baruch and say, hey, man, you know, these things are bad, but there's there's a true temple. And so we actually get this uh, uh, paralleled to us in Hebrews chapter 8. And I'll just read real quick just a couple verses, uh, verse, I think, 4 through, four through 4 and 5. It says, now, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. That would be the, the Levite priests. Um, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. See, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which you have been shown on the mountain. And I actually did uh, quite a, spent a, quite a bit of time on this passage in one of my videos on the channel here, Gospel of the Kingdom of God. Um, it's in part one, and I'll, I'll flash this up here on the screen for you guys to check out at, at your own time. But I basically just show that everything that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, it was just a copy and a shadow. He was literally just seeing the blueprints of what was already built in the heavens. And yeah. so all this stuff that we're seeing being destroyed in second Baruch, Baruch is having, is being reminded of that as well. Is that look guys that, you know, there's a greater thing to come here. And that's what we see in the rest of Baruch as he talks to him about the, the resurrection and all these things at the constellation of the times. So, yeah. but uh, in this particular moment, we see the, 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 the articles of the Holy of Holies that were being literally rounded up by the angels and then they're going to be thrown into an earthquake happens they're thrown in the earth what happened to that earthquake like what's going on there is there a pit somewhere that we're not that we don't know about that's been what is you see what i'm saying like the topography yeah. of the land what what happened there what's going on um is it just covered over in rubble from the actual destruction of the temple and they never found that hole in the ground because the chaldean army didn't know that that's what happened inside the actual temple was the earthquake inside the actual temple where this hole opened up and they threw the stuff in the earth. Great questions, John. I mean, because like it, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I guess the hole was deep enough or that was covered with debris. So the Chaldean army never saw it. Yeah. And, and the artifacts are not glistening from sunlight because it must be deep enough hole covered over, you know? So like, there's a lot of practical things that go through my mind. Yeah. The way that I imagine it is like, you know, and I already mentioned this, just how the rebellion of Korah, how it just like the earth split open and they just fell through. Same thing with these vessels, right? And the, and the, the tabern or the um, Ark of the Covenant, and all that. And it just maybe that they were shifted and closed back together. And you know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's not, not seamlessly as in you won't see anything, but I don't, I'm not sure exactly what kind of destruction would have gone up, gone about that. But. 
Hey, you know what's, an earthquake. what's fascinating about this? And I don't know if this was intentional or not, but Steven Spielberg uh, in uh, um, the last Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Remember at the end, he finds the chalice that supposedly oh, yeah. was the cup that Jesus drank from and the earthquake happens and they drop it in the earthquake in the, in the hole that opened up from the earthquake. Yes, I do. As you're saying that, I remember that. And they're at Petra. But um, I, I just wonder, like, I wonder if he had any familiarity with it. I don't know. It's probably a stretch, but it's just interesting to see well, some of these parallels, you know? Yeah. So I don't know, man. It's pretty fascinating. But, and, Sean, I just wanted to um, quickly uh, just bring up the idea that, um, you know, Yahweh does use his angels, guys, over and over and over in the scriptures to bring about you know, obviously his message to, to the prophets, this people, and to do destructive things on the earth. And we see it here, obviously, in Second Baruch, chapters 6 and 7. But then also in, um, you know, in Second Samuel, chapter 24, where David had essentially, he, um, he did the census, which was something that Yahweh didn't like. And so Yahweh sent a pestilence upon Israel. And a lot of people died that day. And it says that that Yahweh sent an angel who stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. And then Yahweh eventually relented from the claim. And he said, that's good enough. You've destroyed enough people. Relax your hand type of thing. But there's a, you know, this isn't something that's isolated. Here's what I'm saying is that Yahweh uses his angelic, um, you know, posts to do his bidding, to do destruction on on you know, Jerusalem and on his people and on obviously on other nations as well. So I just wanted to throw that in there, Sean. Yeah, you're exactly right, man. And this is par for the course with, like we said, even, you know, with the mention of Bethel earlier in the history therein, all the angelic interaction happening. Um, we got all kinds of angelic interaction all throughout the book, both for delivering messages of hope or delivering, you know, timely messages for protection or for judgment. You know, we got like Exodus 23, you know, Yahweh's explaining to Moses and all the Israelites, my angel will go before you. Do not test him because he will not show you mercy. You know yeah. what I'm saying? My, my name is my authority is in him and he's the, he's going forward before you to lead you um, to take you into the land uh, where all these clans are. But do not test him. And so because um, these angels are commissioned, bro, they, they will take care of business if they have to. Yeah. And that, that mm-hmm. angel actually is um, one of the angels of the presence who went before the camp of Israel in Jubilees chapter one. It, it mentions this is the angel that went before the camp. So that's a direct yeah. reference to Exodus 28, which is fascinating. Not Yeshua, guys. This isn't Yeshua. This is an angel. It's an angel. Yeah. Well, just like we see the, the angel of the Lord spoken to us in. Yeah, there's so much. In Ramil, right? Later on in the book of uh, the Apocalypse of Baruch. Ramiel, right. who we who we saw mentioned in Enoch twenty, I believe. So uh, yeah, I think that was like chapter or episode three or four of Honor of Kings. We went over the Enoch twenty, but basically, um, yeah, I mean, like these guys, they're they're commissioned to do jobs. They have jobs, and some of them have the jobs of judgment. That's so right. It's just kind of the way it breaks down. You got to have somebody to enforce. You know. Yeah, I, I love uh, how it's put here, though, Sean. Like the angels went to each corner right there's four of them on the four corners and they just like destroyed the foundation at each corner and then they set it a fire and like you know so proficient right so like <laughs> the bulk of this context of what's being read in job here is about the power of god and um you know verse 12 says have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place um that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it hmm. and so uh, you know 
I just, that's, even though this is talking about a little bit something different, that's just that same kind of imagery. Like here's the, the, these angels at the corner foundations, you know, and they're, they've torn down the walls they're taking, they're going to, the earthquake happens, you know, and uh, clearly the, the wicked rebellious house of Israel and Judah have already been scattered from the land and everything. I just think it's fascinating because we see every single time that there's major judgment happening pertaining to Jerusalem, that there's an earthquake. Yeah. It's fascinating, you know, and it's just, um, it's just like, it's like a great way that he tries to tell people, look, this is, you know, I'm God like this, you know, of course we, even we see in at the moment of the crucifixion, it wasn't there a great earthquake. There was a great earthquake when Yeshua said it's finished, which is fascinating because in revelation, there's a voice that comes out of the temple that says it is done. And there was a great right. earthquake too. So I'm like, Hmm, <laughs> interesting little parallel there. And that actually leads me to, I'm glad you said that, because that, that leads exactly to the question I had for you, Ken, um, about this passage we've read in Second Baruch, okay? So in a quick synopsis, we've got, you know, Baruch being shown that just the, the Chaldeans are about to, they've surrounded the city, but they're not going to be the ones that are going to actually destroy and overtake the city, nor the temple, nor get into the Holy of Holies and take the whole artifacts. Now, we read later, right, that, that the Chaldean army did take some of the other vessels that were in the temple yeah but not these particular ones that were the ark of the covenant and the holy holies and all that stuff so those were those were like first priority one for the angels to go hide so the enemy wouldn't get those so they wouldn't be able to boast yeah. and the walls and the foundations are destroyed by the angels and therefore you know chaldeans can come in and without even a fight right that's right so here's the question here's the fun theological question in the days of jesus they have a rebuilt temple they don't have the Ark of the Covenant. Nope. So what's going on? What are, what law? How is he fulfilling the Day of Atonement? How is how are are the priests doing their normal duties? Uh, what's what's happening here? Well, I've wondered that. I've wondered that because the that was an integral part of you know the temple services. Have you know the Ark of the Covenant needed to be there, right? I mean, you had to have That's a right. holy seat for his presence to be upon. Was he was he literally was he there during that time? I don't know. Was who there during what time? Well, Yahweh in, in his presence. Like, would he? Oh, I got you. Well, we have, you know, uh, in, in the beginning of Matthew 1, we got Simeon, part of the temple. We got the the prophetess of Avasher, Anna. She's there her whole life serving in the temple. Yeah. What are they serving? If the Ark of the Covenant and the Book of the Covenant that was in the Ark was like their main relic and that was like the huge central focal point of what the high priest prepared for all throughout the year. And the other priests, you know, did stuff like, so did they still have the, the boiling sea and they had the other, the other altar, the bronze altar. They just didn't have the Holy Holy stuff. But yet at the crucifixion, we see that the, the veil splits from the earthquake, right? That's right. That's gone though. Exactly. That's yeah. what I was just saying. So we, we, we have a claim here that the actual veil was taken, but, and the ark, and the book of the covenant and all that jazz. So what's behind the, the new veil they put up. So the point I'm trying to say is this all goes back to Hebrews chapter eight. This all goes back to Exodus chapter 25 and 26, where Moses is told, I want you to build a replica, a replica of what's in heaven. It's not the real thing. <laughs> it's just a replica. So even in the days of Jesus walking around, the priests are still doing their duties, and yes, it's still considered righteousness, and they're still commanded to do these things because the whole point of practicing the law 
is that word practicing. Right. They're literally practicing in preparation for the resurrection when we do it perfectly and do it forever because we've been given a new body and a new heart by the Father that can do it forever without fail. Therefore, we never transgress the covenant again. So this is the whole point from start to finish that this, this is why Jacob in, in Jubilees chapter 32, he sees the, what's going to happen throughout all the ages and he wants to build this temple. And Father's like, no, no, don't you don't worry about it. You know, in the due time, the temples get built where I place my name and then I'm going to bring you back to this place. So in the, in the same correlation of Jacob getting passionate and emotional and wanting to build this temple, in that same concept, the father's like, no, in the future, I'll bring you back to this place. But right, right now is not the time. So none of this was the time until the day of the Lord when Yeshua returns with the new Jerusalem, the true tabernacle of heaven that comes down to earth where yeah. God can dwell with men on earth. So Amen. this whole purpose, this whole concept, from even through the days of what we're reading in Baruch, uh, even when the temple's rebuilt in the days of Nehemiah, and they rebuild it at great cost, and defending them, defending off the marauders as the other guys are building the temple right behind them, and all the dedication, even though they cry over it, they lament over it, the point is they're not, you know, most of them, in my opinion, had a grasp on the eternal aspect of this, not the immediate, the momentary, but they did want, they did want a replica that they could literally see you know, and they could a place where they could go practice his ways, but most of them had an understanding that this was just a copy and a shadow of what's real in heaven. Yeah, yeah, amen, man. I agree with that. 100%. So, yeah, that's where people think, well, oh, well, Jesus is Jesus wasn't fulfilling the law anyway because there was no Ark of the Covenant, and they couldn't do the Day of Atonement anyway. So he was breaking the law all the time anyway. And I'm like, no, no, you guys don't understand the law, nor do you understand any of the artifacts of the temple that were given to Moses, or any of the designs, or any of the thing. You're not understanding what was actually told to Moses on the temple on the Mount Sinai was that in this vision he was having that you're just making a copy of what you're seeing in heaven. So you guys can pretend on the earth you can practice this stuff and get good at it so that you, you know, like Jesus said, that he who keeps my deeds shall be considered worthy to attain their resurrection. Yeah. You know, so this so he can be forever placed in that position to keep the deeds forever. Yeah. So the whole thing was about practicing. Yeah. Amen, man. Um, Sean, I just want to say in second Kings chapter 25, um, starting with verse 13, it says, now the bronze pillars, which were in the house of the Lord and the stands and bronze sea, which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the spoons, and all the bronze vessels, which were used in temple service. And the captain of the guard also took away the fire pans and basins, what was fine gold and what was fine silver. So. This, in my opinion, this doesn't rub up against what we read in Second Baruch here, with all yeah. the different implements that that went down with the Ark of the Covenant and veil and all that stuff. The that's interesting. The veil, man, I had it like that popped in my head instantly when you said, "What about the veil?" Right during yeah. the days of Yeshua when it tore in, in half. Yeah, they yeah. would have had to make their own their own mock up veil, right? Um, so the, the Chaldeans grabbed all the other artifacts that would be outside the Holy Holies, where they did all the other stuff, the yeah. other type of services, but. The inside the Holy of Holy stuff, that was all already gone. So yeah. can you imagine their faces, just in case any of them may have known? Because remember, wasn't it in the days of Hezekiah where he brought the emissaries from Babylon I think, uh, into everything? He showed them the treasury, showed him... Yeah. That was a no-no thing. Yeah. yeah, he showed them all this stuff that they... All the gold layered over everything and plated over everything and the silver. And they're in basically just, you know, he's he's like MTV Cribs, you know, it's like Hezekiah's like, come on in, some let me show you how I'm flossing, you know what I mean? No. And he's like, 
and the Lord was like, why did you do that? They're going to come and invade you now, you know? <laughs> and so even though Hezekiah is called a righteous king, he made a pretty big mistake. Yeah, but that was, um, that was foolish for sure. It's That's an interesting little passage for sure. Sean, yeah. isn't it in, is it in Nehemiah or Ezra? I can't remember where it is exactly, but doesn't it say like Cyrus gives back some of the implements? Yeah. Or they give him back some of the tools. Yeah, no, he gives him back everything. He gives him, he gives them money to rebuild the temple. He gives them animals to do sacrifices even daily. He gives them all kinds of provisions, plus gives them back all the artifacts so they can put them back in the temple when it's built. Yeah, right. But it didn't happen in his lifetime. It took a couple kings. But the point is, um, yeah, yeah, the father moved on Cyrus's heart pretty strong, and he just gave him back everything Nebuchadnezzar stole. Yeah. So fascinating, man. Wild. Yeah. And no, I do not profess that Donald Trump is a modern day Cyrus. <laughs> so he is just because he has a his his emblem on the back of a coin that they're they're minting in Jerusalem doesn't does not mean he's you know a modern Cyrus in any way. Wait a minute, they're, modern day Jerusalem is implementing Donald Trump's face on the back of a coin. I I saw something with Donald Trump's face on the back of a coin that was being minted in in Jerusalem. Bro, that's got to be something like a TBN scam. That can't be real. <laughs> it, it it might be. I don't have to look into that, but that's wild. That's wild. Um, okay. So <laughs> yeah, guys, thank you for joining us for honor Kings. Um, and Ken, unless there's anything else in this passage you wanted to go over, we, I, I think we hit no, it. I mean, we, we can go over more, but I think we've, we've done a, a good enough, um, discussing kind of what we wanted to discuss in this episode. And, you know, the next episode that we do, we're going to cover the first four chapters and, and, um, of the second Baruch. And it's, it's going to be amazing guys. It's, I think it's going to be fun how we're going to do this, Sean, because as we'll see, we'll, we'll be doing some hopscotching around different extra biblical books and into the canonized scriptures as well. Right. So it might be an interesting way to do this show is wherever, you know, wherever we get led, we'll just go to those books. Yeah, I think uh, we're going to stick next week with the uh, the book, the Apocalypse of Baruch, like we were just talking about. But then after that, in the following week, we're actually going to tackle a different book. It may even be a smaller one um, that we can cover in an entire entire episode. But um, I know there's been a lot of requests for us to get to the Book of Jubilees, and I promise you guys we will. I do. I prom- I know that it's, it's a favorite book of ours, too. But um, there's, we're just trying to spread this around a little bit. There's a lot of uh, – Jubilees is not a normal book because – it's it's so filled for, uh, with dates and names and places and times. It's not just t- telling a narrative like we just read from the four chapters of Baruch. One chapter in Jubilees could take five episodes because it's so layered and packed with so many significant things to consider um, and to break down so that we can test it in a in a way that Ken and I feel comfortable. So we we really we we hear your cry your cry that you want to look at the Book of Jubilees some more, and we will get to it. We promise. Um, but in the meantime, we're, we're tackling just a little bit of some other books because we can cover them over a little quicker and discuss those a little quicker. But um, Ken and I love Jubilees. So what I do want to say, I'm excited, guys. I want to encourage you guys that um, if you haven't already found that Ken and I do a complimentary show on a on a uh, associate channel here. It's another channel that we um, have an affiliation with and that we we think is a great channel to consider. It's called Parable of the Vineyard. If you haven't already seen us, we do another show in there called uh, The Road to Rescue, and we're going to be doing those on Sunday nights. We were doing them on Wednesday nights, but we're doing them on Sunday nights. I think we've already done, what, 10, 12 episodes, nine nine episodes on there. And we just, the whole purpose of The Road to Rescue, that show we do on that channel, is we dissect 
all the ways that the scriptures and the prophets talk about the return of the Messiah on the day of the Lord, all the different component pieces that go into that. It's a lot of fun. We've done a lot of fun topics. Um, you know, we, we're currently doing a, a, a three-part series called Sitting on a Hill, where we get from Jesus's words, some of the descriptions of this kind of concept, you know. So come check us out over there as well. Like I said before, subscribe to Ken's channel because that's always, um, you know, he's he has a new channel. He has some good videos out, really informative, very well laid out. And in addition to that, Ken is also a musician, and he's put out a wonderful CD. It's called New Cloth, and it came out at the beginning of October. So go check that out, and I'm going to put that here up on the screen for you guys to look at. Go check out that because um, it's wonderful praise music. And it's, in my opinion, it's the best kind of praise music because it's scripturally sound. <laughs> and that's the best part is you're not singing bad, bad, bad doctrine as you get the melodies in your head. But he's a talented musician. It's great. In addition, guys, if you uh, have a moment, if you want to learn more about the biblical creation model, I actually have a separate channel called The Professing. And I'm going to put the link uh, in the description and then flash up on the screen here. But I have multiple videos where I actually uh, go, in addition to scriptures, I, I look at science and I break down some of the videos um, as far as the biblical creation model. So you guys are welcome to check that out. But otherwise, Ken, um, I think we've completed this episode. Do you have any concluding remarks? No, brother. It's, it's been a, a pleasure, as always, to be able to discuss some of these interesting gem-like topics. And uh I thank you for all the plugs. That was very nice of you. And uh, brothers and sisters, I hope that you guys were edified through what we we're discussing today. And if you have any questions, we'll always leave them in the comments. We'll try to get to them when we can. And um, yeah, just uh, Father bless you. And we'll see you guys next episode. Thanks for joining us here on Honor of Kings. Um, and we look forward to seeing you back here next week as we continue to dive into the Apocalypse of Baruch. Thanks. See you next week. <laughs>